Welcome to MBA Podcaster, the only broadcast source for cutting-edge information and advice on the MBA application process. I'm Catherine Girardeau. On today's show, what to do about low GMAT scores. We'll talk to schools, an admissions consultant, the company that created the GMAT, and a first-year student about what the GMAT does and doesn't mean to the various players in the MBA admissions process. Near the end of this show, our student interviewee gives step-by-step advice based on his own experience of what he did to improve his initially low GMAT score. This is MBA Podcaster. Stay tuned to the rest of the program after a brief word from our sponsor. Support for MBA Podcaster comes from Kaplan Test Prep and Admissions, the pioneers of the test prep industry. And after more than 40 years and tens of thousands of GMAT success stories, they've learned that the key to success on the GMAT is preparation and practice. That's why Kaplan, and only Kaplan, offers the ultimate practice test, a trial run of the GMAT at the actual testing facility. It's your chance to find out what you're up against on test day without recording an official score. So when you're up against the real thing, you can focus on what's really important, performing your best. And with eight more computer-adaptive practice tests in the Kaplan curriculum, it's also a part of the most realistic GMAT practice you can get from anyone, anywhere. You'll prep smarter and score higher, guaranteed or your money back. And MBA Podcaster listeners can save 10%. Just use code MBAPOD10 at captest.com slash Podcaster, or when you call 1-800-CAPTEST. Let's get a little background. In a 2008 Kaplan survey of 250 MBA admissions officers, 55% said that the GMAT is the most important factor on the business school application. Over 90% said it's one of the two most important factors. Research correlates every 10-point increase in your GMAT score to another $5,000 in your starting salary after business school. Why? Higher scores help you gain admission into more competitive, higher-ranked MBA programs, which in turn brings more job opportunities and higher salaries. In other words, prepping for the GMAT can have a big payoff. That said, two top MBA programs we interviewed, NYU's Stern School of Business and UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business, downplayed the importance of the GMAT, at least as an isolated indicator of an applicant's potential for success. The schools we talked to agreed that the GMAT is most relevant to admissions directors when viewed in context with the application as a whole. Let's start with a little background on the GMAT itself. Eric Chambers is Director of Key Initiatives at the Graduate Management Admissions Council, the company that brought us the GMAT. Back in, I believe it's 1954, uh, there were nine business schools that wanted to have an objective, fair, and unbiased test to be able to evaluate candidates that were applying to business schools. And so they um, uh, wanted to have an organization that would provide a test. So that's where the GMAT came from. Chambers explains how the GMAT works. The test delivery is now computer adaptive, which is pretty unique to uh, people that are my generation that took the SAT or ACT or other standardized tests back in the day when you sat down with a pencil and paper and took the test. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. now every every question that you get 
determines what the next question will be. So if you get a question right, you get a harder question. If you get that question wrong, you get an easier question. Right. So what the system does is it starts to pin you into a particular bracket, and that's what provides an incredibly reliable and consistent score, which also allows for fewer questions for the candidates and uh, I think a better experience for the candidates as well. The test is always being reevaluated every year to make sure that it's fair and objective and unbiased and, and is obviously a great predictor for the programs that are using the test. But the test is an incredibly reliable predictor of academic success within the core curriculum of business schools. But NYU's Stern School of Business Executive Director of Admissions, Iser Galogli, offers a more nuanced perspective on the GMAT. It only measures how they'll do in their core academic classes. It doesn't even measure how they'll do academically throughout the entire program. Kareem Kang, Associate Director of Admissions for the full-time MBA program at UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business, comments on the GMAT's relative importance in a Haas application. The GMAT is important, but it's certainly not the most critical factor when we're viewing the applicant. Issa Gologli of NYU Stern concurs. Yeah, it's one indicator of someone's academic potential, uh, but it's certainly not the only indicator that we use. What exactly does the GMAT measure? David Petersam is president of Admissions Consultants, Inc., and a University of Chicago MBA. The GMAT is supposed to be a measure of aptitude and analytical skills. It's not supposed to be a test you can study. It's how quick do you pick up on new concepts. Iser Gologli, executive director of admissions for NYU's Stern School of Business, outlines the indicators he uses to assess candidates besides an applicant's GMAT score. We also take a look at their undergraduate record, the strength of their program. We look at the major. We look at each of their grades in that program. We look at the trends of that program. We also look at if the person has any other education, graduate degree, uh, continuing education classes, certifications, professional achievements. We also look at what the person does professionally and uh, how long they've been doing it in terms of assessing how they'll do. For example, someone who may have a slightly lower quantitative score on their GMAT, but for you know five, seven years has been doing sophisticated econometrics modeling, Clearly, we have seven years' worth of quantitative ability, a proven track record there, that can also help offset a standardized test. Kareem Kang of the UC Berkeley Haas School of Business said Haas also looks at the application as a whole, rather than making it purely a numbers game. We're looking to admit not just numbers, we're looking to admit people. We're really looking to get a holistic picture of each applicant, and you'll see if you look at our application that it lends itself to giving the candidate an opportunity to share with us different aspects of their background. Um, you know, we're looking for additional information from the recommenders, and all of that really helps us build a cohesive picture of who the applicant is. To understand the GMAT, it's important to keep in mind what the GMAT doesn't measure. It doesn't tell you who are the best candidates or who are going to be the best teammates or who's going to be the most successful in life. And I think for the people, though, that, that are comfortable, have taken the, uh, the steps necessary to prepare for the test, then they should, they should perform at their capacity. As Eric Chambers of the Graduate Management Admissions Council said, they should. But what if you don't? If you were fully prepared and you felt you felt perfectly comfortable while you were going through the exam and you finished the exam and all those kinds of uh, factors, 
then the question is, do you take it a second time? Not if all things are equal, Chambers said. If you're just as prepared, feel just as well and comfortable during the exam, and answer all the questions the second time, probability is very high you'll get a similar score to the first time you took the test. But if those who weren't prepared or didn't finish, or weren't feeling well or were anxious the first time around take the test again, Chambers said, They typically go up about 30 points. How can you prepare to do your best on the GMAT? Isa Gologli of NYU Stern. I actually suggest that people prepare extensively for that test. Courses, self-study, tutoring, whatever they feel is appropriate. Give themselves more than enough time to do that. Do that very early in the process, well before you're starting your, your essays and, and that part of the application. David Petersam of Admissions Consultants, Inc. gives his step-by-step prep tips. First thing you want to do Get an official GMAC guide and do a self-diagnostic. Take a test, score yourself out, and let's see how did you do. If you did very well in all areas of the test, go to the nearest test center and take the test. If you did well in most of the areas and you only did poorly in one or two, then look at the answer explanations. Do they make sense? Do you understand why you got those questions wrong? If you understand the explanations and you feel like you can, you know, uh, reteach yourself exponents, fractions, right triangles, whatever it was, then by all means, you don't need a test prep company. You can certainly self-study. If those if those areas aren't clear to you, you probably are going to benefit from a tutor. Now, if you have trouble in most areas of the test, or if you need to improve in most areas of the test, and you don't understand the answer explanations, then you want to consider either a prep course or a tutor. I think a lot of people go to the test prep companies prematurely. How can you tell when you're as ready as you'll ever be to take the GMAT? Study until your score plateaus. Over time, you're going to see that you're no longer seeing any gain from continued study. When that happens, just take the test. You know, you did the best you could, and rather than bang your head against proverbial wall over the GMAT, Perhaps there's other things you can do to boost your candidacy, whether it's extracurricular activities, alternate transcript, whatever the case may be. MBA programs have different opinions on whether you should take the test again if you didn't like your first score. Stern suggests you actually schedule two test dates, just in case. They may or may not get the ideal score on their first test, and it's nice to have a second date built in there as a contingency. At Stern, There's no downside in retaking the test. We look at the highest overall score. So I always tell people if they're not scoring at what level they want, they should retake the test. That is the most straightforward and simple way to to attack that, at least at Stern. Every school probably varies on their policies with respect to retaking. Haas recommends retaking the test only if the applicant was underprepared, especially if they have a low quantitative score. When they set for the exam, we may encourage them to consider retaking it if they do feel that that's an area that they can improve upon. Kareen Kang of Haas said the GMAT is also not the only way to assess a candidate's language and communication skills. The TOEFL would also be required in general if an applicant did their undergraduate coursework in a language other than English. Kang lists other ways Haas assesses a candidate's verbal ability. We'll be looking to the writing ability and the clarity of the writing in the application. For candidates who uh, are invited to interview, the interview also serves as a way for us to assess speaking ability. 
Admissions consultant David Peterson has slightly different advice than the two schools we talked to. We advise people try not to take the GMAT any more times than necessary. If they feel like they can improve their score by a minimum 30 points, and assuming that they're not too too low to begin with, by all means retake the test, face that demon, and try to knock it out. If an admissions committee is looking at two applicants, applicant A and applicant B, and if they have the exact same undergrad record, the exact same career progression, the exact same extracurricular activities, applicant A takes the GMAT four times, incrementally improves to a 750. Applicant B only has to take the GMAT once to get a 750. Applicant B has a slight advantage in the process. Applicant B appears to be the type of applicant that plans his work and works his plan. According to Admissions Consultants, Inc., Test anxiety seems to affect about 25 to 30 percent of GMAT test takers. There's good anxiety. That would be the kind in which you are fully prepared and are anxious to get in there and find out just how well you do. There's bad anxiety. That's the kind in which you know you are underprepared for the test, you don't know exactly how to get to the test center, and you're really not ready to sit for the exam. Experts agree that the best way to fight that kind of anxiety is to fully prepare. Understand how the test works, know the range you need to reach for the schools you're applying to, and... Know where the heck you're driving to the day of the exam. There's no need to get yourself worked up wondering if you missed the exit for your test center. Of course, there are direct ways professionals can work with people to help reduce test anxiety. There are some good test anxiety tools out there now, and the schools are becoming aware of them, and more and more applicants are becoming aware of them. But David Petersam said if test anxiety is serious or debilitating... They're going to want to speak to a professional and try to figure out exactly what it is that is, that's affecting them and then how they can best address that. When it comes to the application, how should you address a relatively low GMAT score? The Graduate Management Admission Council's Eric Chamberlain said you need to let the committee know you will do whatever it takes to prove you're ready for the MBA, whether it be taking some additional courses, if it means coming to uh, a math camp or uh, uh, an MBA boot camp, uh, write a letter to the committee, you want me to take the GMAT again, whatever you want me to do, I want you to know I'm fully committed to this, and I know you wouldn't just pick up the phone for every candidate, so... Uh, I certainly want to help you and help the admissions committee understand that I'm, I will be ready to perform in that program when it starts. David Petersam of Admissions Consultants, Inc. We might advise them to retake stats and calculus. Kareem Kang of the UC Berkeley Haas School's full-time MBA program said that's a suggestion Haas might also make. Stern, Haas, and admissions consultants David Petersam agreed that it's crucial to use all parts of the MBA application to show the committee who you are, what you've done, and, if necessary, to try to outshine a low GMAT score. David Petersam. If there's going to be concern about their ability to handle the work, then we probably need to address that perhaps in an optional essay. Maybe it's as simple as using a significant professional accomplishment that highlights their analytical skills and aptitude. Uh, Sometimes we advise people to retake the GMAT. 
Uh, sometimes we advise them to build an alternate transcript, and sometimes we just want them to emphasize how technical their job is. If their quant score is a bit low, we could always have a recommender potentially opine on their quantitative skills as well. Kareen Kang of the Haas School has some tips on what not to do on your application, especially if your GMAT score is low. One common downfall is just trying to ignore it and hopefully thinking that we'll miss it too. (laughs) Um, I I think it it really is to the applicant's benefit to acknowledge some potential weaknesses, but then really kind of then take the opportunity and responsibility to really highlight the other aspects that stand out at strengths. I I would say something else that we see is, is applicants who take the initial step and do acknowledge the score, but then do nothing to address it. If we've seen that someone has only taken the GMAT once without really taking the effort to, you know, really improve their chances and doing everything that they possibly can. You know, I would think any applicant would do everything they can to really stand out. Just how low is a low GMAT score? Low for the school you're applying to is going to be where you compare to the median for your demographic. And if you're somewhere in the, you know, right around the 20th percentile or even slightly below, you might be fine. Low would be if you're more than 50 points below that. Iser Galogli, Executive Director of Admissions at Stern, said it's important to focus on the right number when comparing your GMAT scores to others who've been accepted to the school you're applying to. In general with the GMAT, people probably focus way too much on the average and not enough on the 80% range. The 80% range is really 80% of the people who've actually been admitted to our program and what those GMATs are within that range. And I think for people, if they feel like when they look at their GMATs or how they perform in the test, and if they're below that range, that would be relatively low. But then again, we still accept 10% of our incoming students who have a GMAT below the 80% range. Kareen Kang of UC Berkeley Haas explains how she hopes applicants will use the middle 80% range information provided by the school. We provide that range really to give candidates who are considering Haas and looking into business schools a sense of what that competitive range really does look like. So, um, you know, especially when you're thinking about the different schools that you might be competitive for, that's a great way to start. And that is a middle 80% range, so that does mean that there are candidates who have been accepted who do fall below that as well as go above that. Both Stern and Haas said they view the application holistically and evaluate all parts of it in context. Iser Gologli. I think one of the things that people overly fixate on is looking at the GMAT in isolation. And it's one element of many elements that are within an application, and it's going to vary individual by individual. And I've seen many students come in who are on the uh, low end of our range and do exceptional from an uh, from academic standpoint. Let's turn now to a first-year student at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business, Ronald Rolfe. Rolfe was an infantry officer in the Marine Corps for the past eight years. He shared his personal experience of taking the GMAT with MBA Podcaster. Initially, I uh, bought several of the, uh, the test prep books just at a local bookstore and went through a few of them. I also took kind of a crash course, like a weekend seminar in Durham, North Carolina, near where I was living at the time, which uh, provided, you know, some insight into the test. And I think, 
you know, gave me a, a relatively decent overview of, of the format and, and, you know, some of the uh, types of, of questions and subject, you know, matter that was going to be covered. But I really did not have sufficient time to, to prepare adequately. I was constantly being deployed as an active duty captain in the Marine Corps. So trying to cram in studying, you know, between deployments and while overseas, you know, I really didn't, uh, didn't do, it, do it justice. So when I took that test initially, I really felt that I was underprepared, so much so that I actually canceled the scores. When the test was over, I really wasn't comfortable with even recording that score officially because I really didn't know how to go about attacking the test appropriately. And I ran out of time on, I think, both of the sections, the verbal and the quantitative section. Then, so after taking that test once, it was really kind of a uh, you know cold bath and a harsh dose of reality where I, I quickly realized that if I wanted to do well on the GMAT, I really needed to dedicate more time and energy towards preparing sufficiently to, to do as well as I would have liked on the test. I think because of the unique uh, format of the GMAT being not only academically but psychologically prepared to take the test is uh, a key component to uh, being successful on it. But Rolf said he was far from being mentally ready for the GMAT the first time he took the test. Uh, as I was taking the test and, you know, as the, you can see the clock, you know, ticking uh, right there on the screen and struggling with the questions, it's kind of a, uh, you know, a vicious cycle. And, and I really didn't do anywhere near as well as I had hoped on that initial test. You know, by design, the test is supposed to foster that kind of anxiety and, and make sure that, you know, people have, have adequately prepared and are able to, to handle those kinds of situations. And I guess it just took me accepting the fact that I couldn't, do it on my own, that just, you know, relying on my own previous academic experiences and my own studying wasn't going to get me to, to the score that I really hoped to get. Just going through the books and doing self-study was not going to be enough, that I really needed outside help. I'd been out of school for about seven years at the time, so the quantitative aspects of it in particular, my, my skills were, were very rusty. Rolf contacted a test prep company in New York. Because of his military deployment schedule, Rolf had to cram his test prep course into a single week. The company suggested he come to New York right away to work with a team of tutors who specialize in the GMAT. Um, I spent exactly a week up in New York City staying with a friend, having daily sessions with both the verbal and quantitative tutors, uh, as well as going through some of the more intangible aspects of the test preparation, the psychological aspect of the test and confidence, um, et cetera, et cetera, which really enabled me to go into the test from a much stronger, more confident perspective. And, and in that sort of intangible aspect of the preparation, I thought was, was as important, if not maybe more important, than the actual like hard skills of the sentence correction or the data sufficiency problems on the test. Rolf explained some of the techniques the test prep company used to help him calm his nerves. Mental exercises, stress reduction, routines, breathing, relaxation, mental cues to, to keep yourself calm you know, during stressful situations, specifically you know, as you're taking the computer-based test, and just kind of reinforcing kind of your mental capacity to, to, to go about taking, you know, that kind of a test and just building your confidence. Initially, I was a little bit skeptical, you know, coming from the military background, I, 
you know, sometimes those sort of touchy-feely things, you know, I'm a little averse to, but looking back on it, that really was invaluable and I think help exponentially, you know, on my performance uh, on the test. Rolf had only one math class as an undergraduate, so he said he was especially unprepared for the quantitative section of the GMAT. What the tutor did, which I thought was really uh, prudent, was he kind of gauged my ability level through some initial kind of tests and, you know, interactions, and we kind of determined, you know, that trying to master everything, you know, all of the quantitative concepts of the GMAT was going to be a lost cause. You know, we would get diminishing returns. There was no way we could do that. So he kind of picked and chose some of the most or more important concepts, and we sort of, uh, you know, conceded the fact that there were going to be some questions on it that were going to be just sort of beyond my level, that I wasn't going to be able to get or memorize the formulas for. But he focused on some of the more general concepts and some of the more prevalent ones on the test and really reinforced those and just focused on those. Um, and we were able, I think, to mutually kind of, you know, get me to master those. The test prep tutors covered the verbal section as well. Repetition and repetition and more repetition. Um, she had me get, you know, the full uh, GMAT official prep book and as well as the, the verbal supplement and do literally every single question in the, both of those books. And really by doing that, you start to sense the patterns for, you know, the questions that they answer, the types of questions that they ask, and some of the kind of overarching concepts that they really like to test on, on the GMAT. And she sort of gave me some, some insight as to how to go about recognizing certain concepts, you know, within the sentence correction and the reading comprehension, um, and to really pick up on those quickly to save time. The Saturday after his crash course in New York, Rolf flew back to North Carolina. He took the test on Monday, two days later. I didn't cram the day or the night before. You know, I think that can be kind of counterproductive. You know, I just focused more on, on getting good night's sleep and, and eating right and making sure that I was, you know, fresh for, for, for test day and really just kind of trying to clear my mind the day before. I asked Rolf how his experience of taking the test the second time compared to the first time. It was night and day. In a way, it was good because I took it in the same test center, so I had already knew what the place looked like. I knew where it was. Uh, I was just much more confident, and I, I, I had a much clearer concept of what to expect, and I was as close to fully prepared as I could have been under the time constraints. Ralph said his score wasn't quite as high as the highest he'd gotten on one of his GMAT practice tests, but... You know, I guess ultimately the proof's in the pudding. I was able to, to get into one of the programs that I had been hoping to get into, so it, uh, it did the job. Rolf said his score was in the lower end of the middle 80% range for the programs he applied to, but his unique qualifications probably helped. Being a, a military applicant, I think, helped. From what I had been told, you need to get a score that's kind of in the ballpark so it won't be a disqualifier. And that's what I was shooting for, is to get in that window, you know, to kind of get in the ballpark, and, and I was able to. As schools and admissions consultants suggest, Rolf did use the optional essay on his application to explain his score. You know, where it asked on the application for additional information, I did explain the situation and kind of my unique job history and my inability to, I think, prepare for it 
as I would have liked to have were in a perfect world. Just a few days before starting business school, Rolf officially became a civilian. Rolf has some first-hand test prep advice from his own personal GMAT battleground. You need to kind of treat it as sort of a second job and not just something you do, you know, when you have free time, but actually carving out time in your schedule to study, to work with tutors, uh, to take practice tests. Because ultimately, I think, you know, what business schools are looking for is not necessarily somebody who can ace the test itself or can master the material, but that they're willing to demonstrate a dedication and a desire to get to that program, to get that degree. And I think the score on the GMAT that you get is a reflection of that dedication and desire. And I think really, ultimately, that's what they're, they're looking for, and that's what they're testing by making you take that test. We'll close with some encouraging advice on the GMAT from Iser Gologli, Executive Director of Admissions at NYU Stern. I think if somebody feels that they're a strong candidate for a business school, they should believe in themselves and go ahead and apply. Yes, they should keep in mind what the school's general statistics are and calibrate appropriately in terms of choosing their programs, but just being a little bit below average is not a deal breaker. Support for MBA Podcaster comes from Kaplan Test Prep and Admissions, the pioneers of the test prep industry. And after more than 40 years and tens of thousands of GMAT success stories, they've learned that the key to success on the GMAT is preparation and practice. That's why Kaplan, and only Kaplan, offers the ultimate practice test, a trial run of the GMAT at the actual testing facility. It's your chance to find out what you're up against on test day without recording an official score. So when you're up against the real thing, you can focus on what's really important, performing your best. And with eight more computer-adaptive practice tests in the Kaplan curriculum, it's also a part of the most realistic GMAT practice you can get from anyone, anywhere. You'll prep smarter and score higher, guaranteed or your money back. And MBA Podcaster listeners can save 10%. Just use code MBAPOD10 at captest.com slash Podcaster, or when you call 1-800-CAPTEST. For more information, a transcript of this show, or to register for your bi-weekly MBA podcast, visit mbapodcaster.com. Look for us on Twitter and Facebook to get the latest news and insight in the world of business school. This is MBA Podcaster. I'm Catherine Girardot. Thanks for listening, and tune in next time when we explore another topic of interest in your quest for an MBA. MBA.